Those that know me, my name is Adrian. I have a privilege of kind of being part of the team that serve this amazing family community uh, and, uh, yeah, get to play a part this evening by kind of helping us, I think, at this juncture as a family kind of say, okay, we've, we've lived through something. How do we do the next bit? And so if you've been around, you know that we haven't hidden the journey that we've been on, the journey we've been on both with Gus and Jane, but also the journey we've been on with different individuals within uh, our family, our community. Uh, as one of the things we're really clear on is that Jesus does change everything full stop, that he does give us this amazing life that we get to live in and live in the good of. However, if you read Romans 8, it kind of spells out that amazing life. And it spells it out by saying, actually, you will forever be transformed. You're at the beginning saying, there's never going to be any charge against you. You can live completely shame-free because of Jesus. Then it kind of goes through this bit of saying, actually, through this living shame-free, you then get to know not only intellectually you know God, but actually in your very being, God will come and dwell by his Holy Spirit. And so you get this moment of the Holy Spirit's actually going to dwell in you in order that you'd know, yes, there's no condemnation. But more than that, you know that you approach God not as one to be feared, but one who is our Father. And so the Spirit present is so that we'd know that there's this one who is God, but he's the one who loves us. And we're saying, actually, you're Abba, Father. And then Paul kind of keeps going on and saying, but it doesn't stop there. It's actually we get to know that what we've got inside us, because of what Jesus has done, becomes the hope, the seed of how God's going to transform everything in the cosmos. And you think, at that high point, you think, surely, Paul, you're going to end there. Surely that's going to be it. And then Paul kind of takes this moment and says, hey, but I want you to live with reality. Live in a reality that Jesus does change everything full stop. However, we live knowing in this world it isn't yet how it's meant to be. And then he kind of ends it with this moment of saying, look, in following Jesus, it doesn't promise you a life that is totally fine. Rather, it promises a life where Jesus' love will surround you and you'll never be separated from it, regardless of what happens. And part of our journey as a community, and I'm going to, because it's a slightly smaller bunch, and this is a family kind of thing, I'm going to sit down, the screens are not working, technology's not working, so as one who never has notes but relies on a screen, it's an absolute nightmare. But part of it is this moment we've kind of lived through knowing that Jesus changes everything in suffering. And that's been part of our journey, is as we've watched people suffer, is seeing that actually Jesus is enough in that. And I think for me, I live more and more with the burden of getting people to understand Jesus is enough. I think we've lived for too long thinking, Jesus is all right, but maybe there's more. No, no, there's never more. Jesus is better than we can ask or imagine. And he's enough. He's enough when things are going well. He's enough in suffering. And this evening, I want us to understand that Jesus is enough when we're living with death. And I think, for me, one of my realizations was that actually we've understood how Jesus changed everything full stop in terms of suffering. But now we're facing death. And to be honest, we're a young church. We've been around for 18 years. And in our 18 years, we've only ever had one other death that's affected the whole of us. And that was 17 years ago, which is pretty amazing. And so we're kind of at this juncture, and we're, how we handle this stuff matters. And we kind of felt as a team that just as we've learned and looked at how we live with suffering, we need to, in the same breath, kind of look and, and understand how do we live with death then? 
And it's that that I really want us to see. And maybe we could look and say, hey, but it's Palm Sunday. Shouldn't this be the rah, rah, rah moment? But I think it's actually because of Palm Sunday that we can live with death. See, Palm Sunday is the moment where we celebrate that Jesus kind of sets his face like flint and says, that's it, it's the cross and no other way. That it's my death in order that everyone can know life. And therefore, it's actually because of Palm Sunday we can get this moment of being able to say, hey, we can live with death. Because death is something to live with. And if we had a screen at this point, there would be a passage that came up and come up. And I'd, I'm going to read them out. Uh, trust me, they're in the Bible, or turn and flick. We're not looking at one passage tonight. We're going to look at a number. But we can look at it, get your phones out, make sure that what I'm saying is right. In Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 2, the wisdom writer says this, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. There's, in that moment, the wisdom writer is trying to get us to understand that actually there's, there's this pattern of life. It isn't how it was meant to be. Like if you look at the very beginning of the story of how God creates everything, the overflow of his love, he actually created there not to be death. Death is a result of the fall, which is why whenever you encounter it, it doesn't feel right. And that's right, it isn't right. But it's become part of the pattern of this world that allows us to give birth, as we're going to go and see, to something better and something new. But the moment, the wisdom writes, says actually there's a, a moment of birth, but there's also a moment of death. And we're to live with that balance. And the danger is we can rightly, in some ways, kind of focus on the life. And so we tend to talk a lot about life. In actual fact, we here will talk a lot about this life that we get to live on this earth. And that's a good thing. But the danger is we're living increasingly within a culture that doesn't talk about death at all. It sees death as something to hide away and ignore and either to fight and combat against in order that we can prolong life. But the danger of that is it becomes something that we never face up to. We kind of try and ignore it. And if you like, what the wisdom writer is saying is actually we're not to ignore death. It is something that's there. But it's also we're not to become besotted by it. You know, what I'm not trying to say is, right, living with death is that we continuously are kind of marking down the day, saying, oh, that's another one down. I wonder how many to go. It's not that that we're to live with. It's rather that it's not that we're besotted by it or that we just ignore it. It's rather that we get in this middle place saying, hey, how do we seek to live knowing death's there and live in mindfulness of it? And, and in that, I guess, in these moments, for some of us where we're living knowing we've lost a friend in terms of Jane Rosier, death feels very, very close. For others of us, we'll feel like this isn't someone I knew, but maybe it's someone else's death that it's connected with. And suddenly hearing about this death, that reminds us of that death. And it brings it ever so close again. And it's like, how do we live with that? Or maybe it's that we've never encountered death. And we're thinking, well, okay, this is something that's there, but I've never really thought about it before. And I'm hoping, as we look at this, just briefly, I promise it will be brief, that it gives us some things that help us. I, I remember when I was like 22, 23, uh, just literally got married. I got married very young. Uh, that's all we've got to always understand. I, I'm a lot younger than I look. And I got married 22, 23, and within a kind of 24-month period, three people I knew died under the age of 25. 
And suddenly it was this wake-up call as we all thought we were immortal. We obviously didn't think we were immortal, but you just think death's something that happens, but a way, way, long way away. And suddenly it's in your face, and you think, man, how do we deal with this? And, it, and it's something that I think we have to grapple with and say, okay, does Jesus change everything, full stop, including death? And I want us to see this evening he does. And then what I want us to do is hopefully cause us to get to see that we get to live with death through understanding that it's about giving, receiving, sharing, and hoping. So, that's what, so it's not some four jazzy words I thought, oh, this would bring a nice talk together. No, this is, I hope, something that we'll get hold of and see, actually, this can shape us differently as a community. It can give us support and encouragement in whatever we're facing at this moment. But also, we need to understand that we're living within a culture that's crying out to understand how do you deal with death. There's actually a kind of movement at the moment to get this on the agenda. And so even last week, I was listening to Radio 4. That is the age I am. And listening to Radio 4, and they had someone on just saying, we need, and it was literally this, I'm here to campaign that we need to start talking about death as we don't talk about it. And people don't know what to do. And in it, it was the conversation starting. And if you're like, we, as followers of Jesus, need to be in that conversation. Not staying silent. And so this is actually a moment where God uses it both to bring comfort to us, but also to use us to bring comfort to others. So firstly then, in terms of giving, I say it's about giving voice. In John 11:35, it has two words. It's the shortest verse, yet the most profound verse that I think is there in the whole of the story that is the Bible, where it just simply says, Jesus wept. And in it, it's in this remarkable story where Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb and goes single-mindedly knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus to life. Now, at this point, we need to park the fact that Jesus raises Lazarus to life, but Lazarus still dies again. Let's be clear on that, that Lazarus was raised to life, but he did die again. Like, if he didn't, then that's the best-kept secret that you've ever heard. But he did. So Jesus goes with this single-minded purpose that he's going to raise his friend to life. And it was his friend. This wasn't like someone he was disconnected with. This was his friend who he cared deeply about. And yet Jesus, who let's be reminding ourselves, is God. And it wasn't at this point that Jesus isn't thinking he's God. He knows he's the son of God. He knows he's the one who has always been. He was there at the beginning. He's there at the end. This is the one we're talking about, the deity of God, the one who, the fullness, as Rich reminded us of, of the deity, the fullness of who God is, was dwelling within. That's who he is. Yes, fully human, but fully God. And in that moment, single-minded knows he's there to call out Lazarus from the grave. We're told that as he stands and sees death and the impact it has, he weeps. And in that, we can tend to think, well, let's Hollywoodize it. And you can tend to think the weeping was like a little kind of tear kind of rolling down the cheek. That's, that's not what is conveyed in that word, wept. That word wept is that literally that, that Jesus fell to his knees and broke. And in that, what Jesus did is he reveals something so marvelous. It reveals that actually there is a need to get out what we feel when we are encountering death. 
And it's as though Jesus in that moment was moved, yet also modeled. Modeled something for how all of us are to, to deal with stuff as we face it. And we can look at this broadly in terms of how we deal with emotions, but I want to look at it specifically today in terms of how we deal with death. So what we find there is, is that Jesus models that what we are to do is to give voice. That we're to give voice, firstly, to how we feel. And it is so important that when we encounter death, and for some of us at this point, we are feeling a lot in terms of the loss of Jane. And it's so important that we give voice to that. That we give voice to, to how exactly we feel. Maybe it's not so with Jane. Maybe it's to do with suddenly the matter that we're talking of death. It suddenly reminds us of someone else we knew who died. And it's important that we don't just think, oh man, I, sh- I, should, have, I should have dealt with that by now. No, no, it's there and we have to give voice to it. And so do we give voice to the, to the emotions? And I, but those emotions that we feel we give voice to, is, is it, it can be to one another. But I'd say more importantly, is to God. And we're going to come on to a moment why that's important. But it's that we give voice to how we feel to God. But it's also not only do we give voice to our emotions, I think it's also that we give voice to our questions. I think sometimes we can be so concerned of seeming like we've got it all sorted that actually we can push down questions that we're left with. And when you face death, it can sometimes just cause you to think, man, this doesn't seem fair. Or maybe it's that we're left thinking, I, I don't understand why. Or how could you have let this happen, God? And it's so important that we allow those questions out. Because the thing is, God's big enough for the questions. We're going to see in a few weeks' time how Jesus encounters his friends after he's resurrected. And he kind of encounters one of his friends, um, Thomas, who is just questioning, saying, this is nuts. There is no way Jesus is alive. And and if, if I... Like, unless I kind of touch his wounds, I'm never going to believe this. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He allows the questions to come and then meets him in the questioning. God wants to hear our questions. We need to share our questions as we face death. And it's so important that we give voice to our emotion. It's so important that we give voice to our questions because it then brings us on to the receiving part. Because what the next thing is having giving voice, it's then we get to receive. and It's a receiving of comfort. So in 2 Corinthians 1-3, Paul reveals the wonder of who this God is. And he describes God as what? He says, this is the one who is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. That's who he is. Father of all compassion, God of all comfort. He's the plumb line, the origin of compassion. He's the plumb line and origin of all comfort. Which is why it's so important that when we're giving voice, that we don't just give voice to one another, we give voice to God. Because he's one who can come to meet us at a level that no one else in the whole of the earth can. See, if you were to ask my kids, one of them's in the room, I'm not going to ask her to publicly question this, but, uh, or come and share, but I've got three kids, and if you were to ask them, like, what kind of dad am I? They'd say things like, they'd say, like, they'd want to give me a positive light. So they're going to say, I'm kind. They know that I love them no matter what. They know that generally I can be good. And they generally that I'll try and get what they want and always what they need. However, if you were to push them, they'd also say, I can be grumpy. 
and I can lack patience. So there's a nervous laughter already over there. But that's the reality. Because I'm human, I'm frail, I'm broken, I'm being made more like Jesus, I'm being made more like God, but, but I have weakness as a father. I can seek to be as kind of straightforward and as level as I can, but there are moments just life and tiredness and stuff kicks in and I, someone pushes my buttons and I'm just grumpy or I'm impatient. But the deal with God as a father is he's nothing like me. I might be trying to use him as my plumb line, but he's never lacking patience. He's never grumpy. It's never that we come to him and he's saying, well, man, didn't we talk about this yesterday? Like, why are we doing this again? No, no, he's one, but whenever we come and turn to him and give voice to stuff, he's rushing in out of his compassion. He sees us and he's moved by it. And can't help but say, hey, now I see it. I now want to comfort you as the origin of all comfort. That's the one who wants to come to us. And as he comes to us, we need to understand that he wants to do it in two different ways. That the Father wants to comfort us experientially. Sometimes we can think, all right, how God wants to comfort me is just, yeah, I can, I, it's like I'm getting my mind over matter. Yeah, God is a comfort. No, no, God sent his Holy Spirit, who is God, to come and dwell within us in order that we know his supernatural comfort. Like, not as a wishful thinking, no, no, as a present reality. That we can know that sense of that the Holy Spirit is present within us. It's, what I love about the Bible is it, it kind of mixes all of its metaphors or its explanations of what's going on. And so you think, oh no, we're Western, therefore we'll get this down the line and say, this is what it looks like. Holy Spirit, this is it. And once you know that, then you get onto this bit. No, no. Jesus himself describes the Holy Spirit as welling up from within, pouring out over us. Which one is it? It's both. There's moments of the Holy Spirit who's within us is bubbling up from within, as well as moments as God's presence comes and dwells with us. So we physically know he's there with us. And when Jesus promised that he's going to be with us to the very end of the age, that wasn't like we can mystically know Something. No, no, it's that we presently experience it. See, when we hit death, it isn't alone. It's knowing that love that promises that nothing will separate us is there, present, as an experience that God is longing to come and dwell within. Pour upon. But it's not only an experience, it's also a comfort to know. Now, at this point, you think, well, haven't you just said that the knowing we've got to experience. And it's both because actually the comfort God wants us to see is a comfort that we're to know. Actually in those questioning, in that mystery that we live with is allowing us to get to that point of understanding who God is. Of knowing that actually this God who's revealed through scripture is one who will never leave us, one who will never forsake us, one whose love will eternally be on us. One who has the final word. I tell you what, what I love about Jane's story isn't the suffering. What I love about Jane's story is the end. And we always said cancer would not have the last word over her life, and it didn't. It hasn't because of what we're going to go and look at in terms of her hope, but it didn't in terms of her death. The fact that the peace that she knew 
in that last 48-hour period was phenomenal. The fact that just before she died, she came to, having not been conscious throughout the day, to then have a moment where Gus could pour out his love and thanks to her, and for her then to wave goodbye to him. Like, cancer doesn't have the final word. And even when people have died in a different way, it still doesn't have the final word. God does. And that brings comfort. So we've done giving voice, receiving comfort. Third thing is sharing. Paul writes this in Romans 12, 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. See, we're to share what's going on. Now, we haven't got the privilege this evening, or this afternoon, we did this morning. So Gus came this morning. Gus came this morning not because he's a leader of Oasis. He didn't come to say, hey, look how robust my faith is. I've turned up still on the first Sunday of us gathering since my wife died. Now, Gus turned up this morning because he understands this verse. He understands to share mourning means you have to make a choice to share with others that you are mourning. Is that what Gus did? He came amongst us and he shared his mourning. Now, in it, as he shares that, then it meant the rest of us get to then stand with him and share in how he's mourning. That's for Gus, but for different ones of us in this room, we're also going to be feeling that. We're also going to be knowing that we are mourning at the moment. Maybe it's for Jane, maybe it's for someone else. And in it, it's making the decision of vulnerability of saying, actually, I'm not going to isolate myself. I'm going to choose in this moment to share with others what's going on. That's vulnerable. But it's, it's how we're meant to be. Because in that vulnerability, what we need to trust is we're also building something that genuinely is family. That genuinely is a body that Paul spoke about, that actually when one is suffering, one is mourning, that the rest feel it because we're intricately connected. And then we're able to know that as we are vulnerable and say, this is how we are, others rush in to protect us and say, I'm with you. And that's the kind of family we're building. That's the kind of church, community, whatever word you want to give us, that's what we are. And to settle for anything less is settling for second best. And so in it, it's that choosing to share, but also standing to share. And standing with those who share it. And, and with that, I'd say just a couple of things. One is that we need to remember all we looked at in suffering. It means that we empathize. We don't sympathize. Sympathize is, they're there, it'll be okay. Empathize and empathy is where we get alongside and say, I am with you. I'm not trying to push you on, I'm just saying I'm with you. And we need to get better and better at this. Because I tell you what, not only is there a community here that need it, there's a world out there that is longing for it. But it's not only empathy that we need to be remembering, it's also time. See, this thing in terms of sharing with others, mourning with those who mourn, it isn't we then think, right, done. You know, this is within, when Paul's writing this, this is within a, a time and era where there was a culture of mourning. Where literally you, you call obviously not by phone, but you'd call the, the professional mourners and say, hey, we're going into mourning, and then you'd pay for professionals to come around you for a set period of time. They'd come and they'd put on the sackcloth and ashes and start crying on cue, 
playing music. And that's how they did it. And they went, we're now mourning. And everyone would go around from the village and say, or the town and say, oh, they're in mourning. And the professional mourners are there. What Paul's speaking of is totally countercultural. So no, no, what we're doing is something different. This isn't a professional response. This is a heartfelt connection. And therefore, this takes as long as it needs to. It isn't going to be, now we've got our two weeks, a month of mourning, now we move on. No, no, it takes the time it needs to. And the time will be different for every single one of us. And we mustn't ever push someone on before they're ready to. See, for some of us, we're living, when we hear this one, we're living with mourning for someone or some, someone we dearly love that, that died years ago. I mean, man, shouldn't I be over this? That's the thing. It just affects us. And sometimes we feel like we've dealt with it, and then something happens, and it, it kind of brings it back. And it, it isn't that we're wrong. It's just that it just takes time because we're frail. And so it's just knowing that it, it needs time and can take time. And then lastly then, so we've done three. Last one then, hoping. Hoping in a future. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18 says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, it's so important that we get to know we have hope. It's, we understand, though, that the other three things are as important. And why I'm doing this one at the end is there's a danger, because we know we have a hope, is we push straight through to the hope and then don't give voice, don't share, and don't receive comfort. And it's, it's really important with those two, three, but also that we do know that we have a hope. If we don't have a hope, to be honest, let's stop doing this. Because to be honest, there's loads of stuff we could do if there is no hope. But we do have a hope. Now, out of every passage in Scripture, why did I choose this one? Well, because this bit comes after something that has been very dear to us and shaping to us as a family this year. So it comes after the beginning of chapter 4. Profound. Beginning of chapter 4 is, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And we've understood this. We've understood that actually who we are as humans are like jars of clay. We're fragile. We can break easily. Sometimes we can sound so amazing and sometimes we can sound so clunky. And Paul kind of gets to that point and says, hey, but you've got this treasure inside, the treasure of the wonder of who Jesus is. But actually, but in that, you need to know that then causes you to live differently. And we can look at it and say, hey, but how can we possibly live knowing that death is just like a light and momentary trouble? And how can you look and say, and you know, I was talking this with Gus in the room, and say, hey, the last 18 months of your life, light and momentary. And that's surely making a mockery of what they've been through. And yet Paul uses those words that can feel so wrong because he has a perspective that he wants us to get hold of that causes us to realize, let's not settle for anything but second best. Because when we really understand the hope that we have, a hope that is not yet seen, it then causes us to have a perspective of whatever this life throws at us. 
Therefore, it's so important that we live knowing we have a hope. It's so important that we allow our sight to be gazing on what is unseen. And in that, that isn't suddenly an invitation to mysticism. It's rather an invitation to, to read our Bibles. And so I love it that John, this amazing friend of Jesus, who was forever changed by Jesus, who couldn't help but describe himself as the one Jesus loved. So I love about John. He doesn't ever say to himself, he doesn't say, and then I. He's always the beloved one, the one Jesus really loved. Like he couldn't help but say, this Jesus changed him forever. And this one that... Jesus loved, he knew he was loved, then lived with this message of love. And then Jesus then shows him that this is what it's going to look like when I get this world as it's meant to be. This is what I want you to bring hope to those that are being persecuted at the moment. So you get this book of Revelation where it's revealed the wonders of what is to come to bring hope to a bunch of people that are suffering. See, this isn't how it's always going to be. So you get to the end and Revelation 21, 22. You read this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Chapter, two, uh, chapter 22, 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They'll not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, we need to know that is a sure and certain hope. And we haven't got time tonight to unpack it, but what in nutshell we're being told is that God comes and dwells on this earth and renews it all to be the place where he dwells, in order that we can see him as we see one another. Father, Son, and Spirit will see them. And in it, that, that's to know that we will be more complete than we can ever imagine. It's also to know that this place will still look like it does. It isn't that we're going to some cloud city in no man's land. It's that we're going to something that is physically able to be touched. We're told that we're going to live in a city, a city that has a garden or a garden that has a city. And in it, it's going to be a place where there is no night. Now, night, whenever it's spoken of, is a place where Night's always of darkness and everything that goes of darkness and that there's fear and a wonder of what could happen. So I know there's lightness. This is a place of complete safety. A place of complete wholeness. A place where we know that we are forever gods, that we are the most complete we can ever be, where it says we're branded. I love that thing of everyone will have his name on their foreheads. It's... Like that can feel a bizarre moment, but the reality of that is saying that we will be so gods, when people look at us and we look at each other, we'll be just identified as his. At the moment, we know we're his, but people can look around and say, oh, are you? They don't have to watch us, see how we live, say, oh, are you really his? Now, this will be a moment where it'll be so true of who we are connected to him. It'll be as though we're labeled on our foreheads. This is our destiny. 
one will be forever complete in him. We need to keep looking there because it then allows us to know, hey, what is to come is far better than what is here. Even the moments that are phenomenal here, when you go and you see a bit of creation looks more beautiful than you could have imagined. And you think, oh no, this is still just like a glass dimly. One day God's going to fill this planet with all of his goodness and love and it's going to be beyond what we can see now. The best that we know now is a poor reflection of what is to come. Which is why my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, at the end of his Chronicles of Narnia, where he's been kind of revealing just this story of God in a, a palliative way of just trying to express something of how people could understand it, who may not read the Bible, maybe could start to look at that story that he paints to get to understand the bigger story of what God does and the redemption of everything. And he gets to the very end of the book, and he talks about how the key characters have died and now are with Aslan, who is God, and are in with God as he now starts to bring about this new creation. And this is how he pens the last part of that story. He says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That was a guy who understood, and he lived with suffering. These light and momentary troubles are bringing about a glory that's beyond anything we could imagine. But for us, this life on this earth, and all the adventures that we have, are only the cover, and the title page. One day, we will start the beginning of chapter one. Where we'll see Jesus face to face. And where we get to live in a destiny that Jane has already started. Where every chapter is better than the one before. And it's a story that no one's yet told because it's beyond anything in this room, anyone in this room, anyone on this earth could ever imagine. We have a hope. Therefore, we live with death. We live knowing it's there. It shouldn't be. But actually, death's there because it brings about life. A life that is brand new. A life that Jesus came as he faced the cross to die to rise again in order that he could take us and say, hey, this isn't how it's meant to be. I now call you into eternal life with me in order that you can know a destiny that actually means that you will pass from this life to the next and you will be renewed and made well. And therefore we have hope. So I encourage us, let's live knowing death set. Let's live knowing that we need to give voice to how we're doing. Let's live knowing that we need to receive comfort. Let's live knowing that we will share. Let's live knowing we've got hope. In terms of this moment, what I want us to do is therefore turn and worship. I think it's the best thing to do. Surely on this Sunday, where we say, oh, we're not kind of trying to imagine we're in Jerusalem, putting palm trees down to Jesus on a donkey. No, no, in this moment, we're saying, no, we see you for who
who you are, Jesus. And you're so worthy of worship. And in our worship as we come together, I'd encourage us, let's give voice to how we're feeling. Let's expect as we lift up Jesus that he comes to comfort us so we get to receive from him. Let's just come and celebrate this hope we have as we turn to communion, which promises us as we take here that Jesus has changed everything.